Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumseh-Sequetan territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequetan-Ulu. And today's text, The Witches by Roald Dahl, does not have a territorial acknowledgement because uh, the book and the film both take place in Britain. Joe, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the prep for this week. I oh, good. Okay. don't know if I was expecting to. It's been a long time since I've sat down with a Roald Dahl book, and we will yes. talk about Roald Dahl and anti-Semitism mm. and that whole component of his life and oeuvre. Boo. <sighs> so much boo. Like, why? This, to me, is very much like an Ender's Game right. text in that the book itself is something that I want to, like, hold on to as precious. Yes, and the absolutely. person who wrote it is just so gross. Yeah, <laughs> like, human garbage. Yeah. Why? Why are you going to be so gross? Um, but, like, I was surprised. I, I didn't just read The Witches and watch the 1990 film, Joe. I also watched the 2020 film and read the 2020 graphic novel adaptation, which is my Ooh. favorite of the four, and I'm excited to tell you about it. Okay, because I didn't even know that there was a graphic novel adaptation. I was delighted that you ended up checking out the other film because I think that that film got a bit of a raw deal and it is doing some interesting things. But because it was coming out during that purview when HBO Max was getting all of a certain type of studio releases, it definitely meant that it came... It was popular for about two or three days, and then people said, ooh, the CGI is not very good, and they immediately dismissed it from their memories. And that's really unfortunate, because I think it is doing some fun stuff. And also, Anne Hathaway is a great (sighs) Grand High Witch. She's not Angelica Houston great, but she's pretty darn good. I really enjoy her in the role, and I think that the film does a lot of things well that we should Mm -hmm. talk about in relation to maybe some flaws in the original text, but... Uh We'll start with the original text, I guess, shall we? Let's do it. Oh, by the way, everybody, welcome to Band Book Club for October. Oh, yeah! (laughs) Forgot. (laughs) This is a book club. It feels like a regular episode, like an extended episode for me because I read and watched extra things. Mm -hmm. But yes, this is a Band Book Club episode, and we will talk about some of the reasons why it's banned. Uh, Spoiler (laughs) alert. So silly. Witches. (laughs) Witches. Yeah. yeah. I, I got a bunch of responses where people said, I don't understand. Why was that banned? And I was like, it's actually the most obvious thing that you're probably already <laughs> thinking of, but dismissing because it's very dumb. <laughs> so true. Don't forget that it's also been banned because it encourages children to disobey adults. Oh. Hmm. And is simultaneously derogatory to children. The things that I find <laughs> offensive in this book, like the aggressive fat phobia, they don't buddy. get a look in on the ban list, by the way. Oh, no. no. We're, we're happy to make fun of or dismiss fat people. But yeah, don't talk back to adults. Okay, <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> so um, we have another unnamed narrator, Joe. Is that, That's been a couple of texts lately with unnamed narrators. Ooh, that's a that's a spoiler, Bretta, because that's next week's episode. Oh, oops. <laughs> We're recording out of order, folks. Spoiler <laughs> alert, no names next week either. Right. Um so we have a seven-year-old protagonist, which is younger than we usually go, Joe, but we also often take a, a middle grade approach to Halloween because there's mm-hmm. more content. Always. 
So we have our seven-year-old protagonist. He's a little English boy, and his parents have been killed in a terrible car accident. And mm-hmm. he's gone to live with his grandmother. He really loves his grandmother, Aww. and they have a very close relationship. So cute. <laughs> well, and I say that because um, the book is really not particularly interested in the tragedy of the parents dying no. at all. <laughs> it's, it's more like It's an inciting sweet. incident, and they're just gone. No one grieves. The biggest question is, do we have to live in England? It's the, it's like, sweet, my parents are dead and I can go live with my grandma who I love. Well, it's because she does nothing but eat sweets and smoke cigars. <laughs> and tell stories. Yeah, she seems fantastic, even though, yes, you would immediately get diabetes and die. <laughs> So, um, yes, so the grandmother is Norwegian um, by birth, and and she tells him the sort of childhood stories that Norwegian children learn about witches. Mm -hmm. And for this little kid who's grown up in England, he's like, witches? Those aren't real. And she's Mm -hmm. like, oh, no, they're absolutely real. And we learn some important things about witches from the grandmother, namely that they look exactly like ordinary women, but Mm -hmm. they have claws instead of fingernails so they have to wear gloves they're bald so they have to wear wigs but the wigs are cheap and make them itch (laughs) which makes me laugh (laughs) they have square feet with no toes so they hide that by wearing normal shoes but they're uncomfortable all the time their eyes can change color and their spit is blue oh and they have giant nostrils that they use to sniff out children who smell like dog poop to them (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah uh, important thing to note, and we'll bring in Miriam Zemo, uh, because she was the only person who wrote into us about this text. Sad Surprised face. me. I thought more people would be on it, I have to say. Yeah, I couldn't help but wonder if it was just a bad time. We yeah. also had a couple of episodes in September there where I didn't mention it because we had guests on and mm. we didn't really know when we were going to be able to bring Band Book Club back. So That's fair. Uh, folks, no shame if you didn't manage to get to it. We just thought this would be a bit more of a popular text. So regardless, we were lucky enough to get an email from Miriam. Yes. And one of the things uh, that she mentioned was how weird it is in hindsight to read that witches are only women. Yeah, well, she points out that, you know, it's, it's pretty misogynistic in the way it approaches mm-hmm. the conversation about women. Yes. And about witches. And, you know, we're, we're told that vampires and werewolves are always men and witches are always women. And it's like, if this was a book about werewolves and vampires, we would talk about men. But we're not because it's mm-hmm. not, which is a great hand wave. And I liked in Miriam's email because she said, but I still like it. Like, what's sure. wrong with me? And I feel the same way. Like, there are mm-hmm. obviously significant problems in the text, the way it's set up, the inciting incident, the fat phobia. And yet, at the same time. Delightful. Yeah, there's a joyfulness and a playfulness to the way Roald Dahl writes about children mm-hmm. and the ways in which he allows them to be deeply and profoundly imperiled. He doesn't <laughs> necessarily give you the happy ending you might expect or hope for. Right. And I think that that can be really refreshing, honestly, yes. given the the kind of child, children's literature landscape that we often engage with. So, mm-hmm. Miriam, I'm with you. It is delightfully creepy. And it's – I liked it. I liked it too. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, we've learned all these things about witches, and then Grandma has a health scare, so she needs to convalesce at this English hotel, and lo and behold, Brenna, they happen to arrive on the exact same weekend (laughs) that all the witches in England happen to be having their annual conference on how to kill children. 
Okay, so I love everything about this. So first of all, <laughs> she gets sent to the seaside for her health, which is like such a British right. trope, right? Go to the seaside to be healthy. And the thing I love about this is that they get sent specifically to Bournemouth. Bournemouth was the big city closest to where my grandparents lived when I was ah, growing up. I spent okay. so much time in Bournemouth, saw so few witches, Joe, which in retrospect well, seems like a miss. Maybe. <laughs> anyway. Maybe you got lucky. <laughs> Anyway, our protagonist ends up sneaking in by accident to the annual meeting of the Royal Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children, which is the, the uh, cloaking mechanism for the witches' conference. And we hear the master plan. All of England's witches are to purchase sweet shops with counterfeited money that she will provide them with mm -hmm. and give away free sweets at this grand opening. But the sweets will have been tainted with something called Formula 86 Delayed Action Mouse Maker, which oh, is boy. a magic potion that waits about 72 hours to turn children into mice. Mm -hmm. So the idea is the children will turn into mice and they will get killed by probably the custodians in their schools because it will be nine o'clock on a school day when they all turn into mice and thus no more children. Right. Yay. So simple. So easy. Nothing could go wrong with this plan, which is highly convoluted. But sure, witches. <laughs> And so we first see a child who the Grand Witch had met in the lobby and given a piece of chocolate that was tainted and asked him to come back. Uh, and so they get to see the transformation take place so they know that it works. But then they find our narrator in the room and they force a whole bottle of Formula 86 down his throat. And so he transforms instantly. Our narrator mm -hmm. is now also a mouse. And so with his grandmother, our narrator and Bruno, well, Bruno's not that helpful. Um, not really. <laughs> Bruno's too busy eating all the time. <laughs> and they set about to transform the witches using their own potion, which they do by adding it to the green pea soup that will be part of their dinner. And then once they have dealt with all of these witches and returned home, they realize that with the narrator's shortened life expectancy now that he's a mouse and the mm -hmm. advanced age of the grandmother, they're probably going to only live a few more years. So they use the last few years of their lives to rid the world of witches and they hatch a big plan. And at the end of the book, they are off into the world to destroy all the mm -hmm. witches. And there is a sequel to this. Am I mistaken? I don't know if there's a sequel. I thought I saw that there was, or maybe it was that somebody else had written it, but I thought that there was a follow-up to this. Ooh, I would read it. <laughs> yeah, because in some ways, there's two aspects that are highly unconventional about the end of this text. One is the lack of that happy ending that you were talking about, where we don't get to see this protagonist turn back into a boy. He's mm -hmm. still a mouse, and then there is confirmation that he's happy, he's fine with it, but he's also only going to live for a couple of years because that's how long mm -hmm. a mouse lives for, which is grimdark. <laughs> it is. It is. And it also, you know, one of the things that's often commented on in Roald Dahl's work, like as a body, is that he doesn't shy away from the ways in which the world is cruel to children. Right. Mm -hmm. So he often writes about poor children who have access to very little. He often writes about adults who hate children or who mm -hmm. harm children. Right. Like, this is a reality in the world, and it's a reality mm -hmm. in Roald Dahl's world as well. And it's sort of interesting that our protagonist is sort of happier about having this life as a mouse and as his grandmother's sidekick. Like, he's not seeking to get turned back. From the, from mm -hmm. the first time he realizes he's going to be a mouse, he's like, yeah, 
Okay. And there's a real sense in Dahl's work that like childhood is not that great for a lot of kids and that other (laughs) options might be better for a lot of kids. Yeah, like having a tail could be a lot of fun as opposed to having to go to school and getting a job (laughs) and maybe getting married like the Jenkinses, Bruno's parents who just seem abhorrent. Right. And that's another example, the way in which Bruno's parents just simply reject him Mm -hmm. when he turns into a mouse. There's all these layers of like the way adults treat children. Like Mm -hmm. it's not good. Mm -mm. No. (laughs) So the second unconventional aspect is the fact that we're teasing this story where, you know, mouse narrator and grandma go off on this epic journey and the book just ends. Yeah. It's like, oh, that could be fun. No, we're done. This is our story. Be happy with it. Goodbye. <laughs> Feel free to imagine the rest, Tara. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I mean, I like that aspect of it. I like the untidiness of the narrative. Sure. You you knew exactly as you read that ending in the film or in the book that it was not going to end that way in the film. No, right? there, there's too many unsatisfying components where when you're trying to make a movie that costs significantly more than it takes to publish a book, you're going to have to appease your audience and give them something different, even if it makes Roald Dahl really angry. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't like the movie at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we'll we'll get to the movie in a little bit. So, Brenna, let's talk about the bad stuff. Let's let's get the the anti-Semitism on the table. Yes. So that's the reality. Roald Dahl, famously, infamously, um, was anti-Semitic, and as it should be said, was a lot of the class of people in Britain that he came from. And that time period were, which is not to excuse him. It's more Mm-mm. to like paint it's the context. reality of the situation and its context. Yeah. And I think a lot of people struggle with this notion because Dahl was a celebrated pilot in the Second World War. He mm-hmm. fought the Nazis. He was an intelligence officer. He was a wing commander. Like oftentimes when people want to have a conversation about anti-Semitism and his perspective in that regard, or people, when people don't want to have that conversation, they point to his... His track record. His track record. I mean, he, he killed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Nazis. That Then right. that's true. It's also true that he mm. was rabidly opposed to what he saw as jewish control of the media and all those kind of anti-semitic lies that are used to to yeah like i mean that and it particularly he was critical of what he saw as as this sort of media question which you know Mm -hmm. we know is a is a falsehood and an Mm anti-semitic trope and that has been used as an excuse to ages Yes, yeah, like, yes, for a very, very, very long time. Like, this is like Protocols of Zion BS that we're seeing regurgitated. And it's frustrating. I find Mm -hmm. it frustrating because Roald Dahl is clearly smart, right? Right. That's what bothers me the most, right? (laughs) It's people who should be smarter or who come off smart in other regards. And then they also have this giant platform, which people mistakenly conflate for oh well their opinion must be valid and reliable and i should pay attention to it you know you mentioned orson scott card i'm thinking of she who must not be named and it's just like you have a social responsibility to do better 
and instead you spout off this BS which literally harms and kills people. And I think, you know, I think it has been difficult for folks to contextualize because I think that there's a class of intelligentsia, let's call them, who think mm-hmm. that they should be allowed to sort of speak intellectually, and I'm using that in like heavy quotation marks. What I mean by intellectually <laughs> there is like aside from reality, right? right? So it's like I'm just I'm just speaking these sort of theoretical notions. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it does literal harm to people. And you know, I think this this conflict or this inability to maybe grok <laughs> what's happening is maybe best exemplified by the director of the Royal Doll Museum, um, Amelia Foster. And she, this is a quote from her. She's trying to kind of excuse his thinking. And she says, this is again an example of how Doll refused to take anything seriously, even himself. He no. was angry mm-hmm. at the Israelis and he had a childish reaction to what was going on in Israel. He wanted oh. to provoke because he always provoked. His publisher was a Jew. His agent was a Jew. And he thought nothing but good things of them. He asked me to be his managing oh. director and I'm Jewish. So we I've see got this- one black friend. <laughs> Just stop. We see this stop. again and again in defenses of doll, right? Is we see this again and again in defenses of anyone who mm-hmm. makes blanket statements that are anti-Semitic or racist or misogynist or what have you, is that mm-hmm. but they have individual relationships that are very positive, right? And both things can be true, Amelia Foster. Yes. Like he can have a good individual relationship with you and also say wildly harmful things. Now mm-hmm. I think that we should note that in 2020, the Roald Dahl Foundation took responsibility, finally, for Dahl's comments. And they released a statement that said, The Dahl family and the Roald Dahl Story Company deeply apologize for the lasting and understandable hurt caused by Roald Dahl's statements. These prejudiced remarks are incomprehensible to us and stand in marked contrast to the man we knew and the values at the heart of Roald Dahl's stories, which have positively impacted young people for generations. We hope Mm -hmm. that just as he did at his best, at his absolute worst, Roald Dahl can remind us of the lasting impact of words. Well said. Yeah, I kind of like it. <laughs> I like that it takes – I don't love that it gestures to the fact that they think he was still the best guy ever, but it is sure. his foundation. But yeah. I do like that they recognize that rather than painting over these kinds of statements, we mm-hmm. can use this as an example of, yeah, like words have a lasting impact. And you can't say The Witches is this great children's book that we should keep reading forever and ever because – it has the lasting power of language and story and narrative, and mm-hmm. at the same time say, it doesn't matter what the other what the other stuff he said was, that we don't have to care about, right? Like, you can't have it both ways. And I think that the mm-hmm. foundation is trying to demonstrate that. Right. And maybe I'll bring in Miriam here. We encourage people that if they weren't in a safe place, that they didn't need to engage with it, because we would cover this aspect of this text, for lack of a better term, Um, Miriam did choose to go down this rabbit hole a little bit. So she says, I think by now everybody knows Roald Dahl was a deeply unpleasant and problematic man, so not sure what to say about that. And I don't know what it says about me that I still really enjoy most of his work. I mean, the trash fire that is J.K.R., a.k.a. she who must not be named, Mm -hmm. definitely made me love Harry Potter a lot less, but my brain works differently when it's about Roald Dahl's work. Dahl being a raging anti-Semite is also awful and terrible, and it's making me feel bad for enjoying this book. That being said, I think we all have our problematic faves. Yes, absolutely. She continues, the way I handle this is I'm not actively promoting Dahl's books or movies on social media, and if I wanted to buy one of his books, I'd buy it secondhand, that sort of stuff. So 
we've had these conversations before, Brenna, mm-hmm. right? It's like, what do we do when particularly in this case, and in the case of Orson Scott Card, if people haven't listened to our Ender's Game episode, these are childhood favorites. They're steeped mm-hmm. in nostalgia. We have such fond memories of them. And when we read them or revisit them, they still have that effect on us. And it's really hard to reconcile the fact that this thing, which is really important to me or was important to me as a child, is now contaminated by hatred from its creator. Like, how do we separate that? Can we separate this? And I like Miriam's strategy of saying, I'm not going to pretend that I don't still have fond memories of this. I'm not going to pretend that I maybe won't revisit it, but I'm going to try to not actively either promote it to other people to encourage them to buy or consume it. But also, yeah, if I choose to support it, it's like, I'm not going to give money to it actively. And I think that that is a sort of It's a form of passive activism that Mm -hmm. I think we can get behind without saying we can never talk about Roald Dahl again. I think, too, it's going to depend on the text. Mm -hmm. I find this book fairly easy to read and enjoy because I... Like, I understand that on paper it's misogynistic Mm -hmm. in many ways, the depictions of the witch, but I actually think you can counter a lot of the criticisms of misogyny that we see in the witches with the grandmother, who is a fascinating character and much more complex. There's a complexity to the way gender is portrayed, I guess, is what I'll say. The fat phobia is awful. It is really bad. We've seen equally bad or worse in much more contemporary texts, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, we should acknowledge this book is from 1963. And I think that... I think that it's easier for me to read something like The Witches and still enjoy it than it is, for example, to read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? Where we have these Oompa Loompas that are pretty clear (laughs) racist stereotypes of black people, right? Mm -hmm. And then just the notion of how enslavement functions in that text. Like, there are things that are harder to get past when you know about, when you know about dolls beliefs and perspectives and i think too like if we use ender's game as the comparison one of the reasons why i still really like to read ender's game is because i still ultimately think like he constructs this homosocial space for these boys and has this fascinating critique of masculinity and i don't even think he knows he's making it half the time you know what i mean like i'm bringing more to that book at this point in my life than Orson scott card is um, and, and I think similarly, the complexity of the characterization in The Witches and the way childhood kind of functions in it is fascinating still. Right. And I can read it kind of hived off from these other aspects in a way that I can't when I look at something like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Interesting. Interesting, because I do have Charlie and the Chocolate Factory on our list to cover someday. Oh, I, I still want to cover it. I'm just saying I'm going to be harsher mm-hmm. on it, I suspect, because, <laughs> because it's so much more on the surface for me in a book like that. Well, and there's multiple instances, right? Because fat phobia is still in there. There's some interesting convoluted criticisms about class. Yeah. That I think doll feels are progressive and maybe probably aren't. <laughs> No, I mean, it's what a rich person thinks poor people are like, right? Like, ultimately, (laughs) that's what he's doing. It's much more comfortable to me when he's writing from, I'd I'd sound silly to say about a book about witches, but he is writing from his own experience here, right? He was a Norwegian Mm -hmm. British child. Many people have commented that the grandmother is very much a cipher for his own mother. Mm -hmm. It's much more comfortable for me to read that than to read him, yeah, 
imagining poverty or imagining race like no 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 thank you no (laughs) um can i tell you really briefly before we move to the film about the graphic novel yes tell me everything okay so it's an adaptation by penelope begue and it is the witches it's the witches story absolutely but there's one significant change that makes all the difference to me that made me really enjoy it and Mm -hmm. that is that bruno is not bruno bruno is a little girl and Uh, okay the narrator and the bruno stand-in who i have to confess whose name i can't remember but they end up teaming up together to do everything so it's like it's kind of like this fun buddy story that emerges um Hmm. and as a result, you have uh, an additional strong female character to counter some of what is described about sort of any woman could be a witch stuff. Right. And yes. you completely erase the fat phobia piece because you don't have a Bruno character. Instead, mm, the reason why okay. the little girl is so desperate to have chocolate is because her parents are hippies and she never gets to eat processed sugar. <laughs> <laughs> So I highly recommend it, especially if you have fond memories of the narrative of the witches, but you don't think you could get past some of the stuff we've talked about today. Check out Mm. Penelope Begue's 2020 adaptation. It's published by Scholastic and it is genuinely a delight. Also, the art, her art style is definitely borrowing from Quentin Blake, but sort of Mm -hmm. a modernized kind of hip updating of that style. It really fits with the narrative and it doesn't make you miss Quentin Blake, which was my biggest worry about looking at the graphic novel. Right. Yeah, we've not talked about the artwork. I forgot how much of it there was. I remember there being one or two images and there's a lot and it really does contribute to the story. Like it really helps you to visualize doll's words in a way that doesn't feel like it's compromising on your imagination. It's almost accentuating it. Blake uh, had a lot of collaborations with Roald Dahl, I think 18 of them. And I almost Holy, can't okay. imagine their work separate. <laughs> like mm-hmm. the the visuals that Blake creates in that very distinctive sort of sketchbook style that he has is really amazing. And it's funny because I was just looking up his career before we chatted today. And he's the, mm-hmm. the poor man has illustrated over 300 books in his career. Wow. 18 of those are Roald Dahl books. And I still think of him as the Roald Dahl illustrator, which is like so wow, unfair. Wow, so dismissive. I know, so dismissive. <laughs> but you know, there's something unflinching about the way Dahl writes about sort of the tragedies of childhood. And Mm -hmm. likewise, Quentin Blake's illustrations don't flinch either. Like the witch is genuinely scary in the illustrations. Yes, 100%. And that is often surprising. In fact, we have um, on my son's wall, we have a big poster of all of Quentin Blake's rural doll characters. Mm -hmm. And we had to stick a postcard over the witch because she scares him. (laughs) Too scary. (laughs) Too scary. Mm -hmm. So cute. Yeah, I know. Okay, well, let's switch gears and talk about the film. From the incredible imagination of Jim Henson and director Nicholas Rogue comes a fascinating new fantasy adventure. The Witches. For when a little boy accidentally stumbles into their secret world... He finds they've got a lot more power than he ever imagined. Grandma! It's me, Luke! Luke! They 
turn me into a mouse. Oh, my. Who's the Grand High Witch? Join Luke on his remarkable journey. Bye. Now, the witches are on his tail. Whoa. And he must scurry around their evil plots. Oh. Squeak past every danger. Finally setting the trap what? What? that will save the world from the witches. You are in for a treat. We must stop them. So the witches comes out in 1990. This is Joey, still a British film. You didn't tell me it was a Jim Henson production. Do you know how mm-hmm. excited I was when I turned it on? And I was like, oh my God, we're going to have puppets. I'm so happy. I mean, it's common knowledge. I thought you knew. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. So this is directed by Nicholas Rogue. Um, he's a very well-known and very well-respected director. Like he's directed one of my favorite horror films called Don't Look Now with Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. I know him as an adult director. So it's weird for me to revisit this movie, which is very much shot in the same style as he makes his other movies, like a lot of handheld camera work, a lot of interesting angles and kind of almost fishbowl lenses in certain ways. But it's like, here, let me adapt this childhood classic book into a big screen adaptation. And yes, this movie is straight up scary. This movie is huge gateway horror for a lot of people. Of course, we chose this because this is our October month. We're trying to do Halloween, gently scary things. This is probably the scariest thing that we have covered. (laughs) Well, at least this year. (laughs) It's really scary. It's genuinely very scary. So this is from a screenplay by Alan Scott. It was criticized by Roald Dahl for changing the ending. Interestingly enough, when you read about this, it seems like Roald Dahl... And Jim Henson were the ones who ended up sort of fighting about the ending and the changes, which is weird to me because obviously Henson was deeply involved, but we do have Nicholas Rogue and Alan Scott who are technically more responsible. Like, it's interesting to me that at this point, Jim Henson was so famous and so well known that he would end up getting pulled into some of the criticisms and having to defend this. We should also note that this is the last work that Jim Henson worked on before his death, and that Roald Dahl also died shortly after this film came out. So this, they this movie fought, kills and then they people. died. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a quick uh, glimpse at the cast. So literally, you cannot talk about this movie without recognizing that Angelica Houston as the Grand High Witch is a masterclass like this is an absolutely iconic performance and role for her i think a lot of people associate her with this text and she is magnificent like she had to undergo six hours of makeup to do the the witch prosthetics and then six hours to get out of it so she was exhausted this entire shoot can we just let's talk about how this film is such a celebration of the practical effect, especially when you oh. watch it in contrast with 2020. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. it takes time and effort to create these. And I mean, you can, the creature shop is all over these mm-hmm. masks and the ways in which the, the mice work and all that kind of stuff. You can see mm-hmm. it all there. And I just think you watch something like this and the way it holds up, the way this film from 1990 is still it scary. so good. So in good. In the way that, like, a film from 2020 already looks janky as heck. Like, it's just mm-hmm. wild to me. It's 
and I think we are learning it. Like I think a lot of the, um, I think a lot of the streaming Star Wars productions and things are bringing back practical effects and like reminding us of how good they look for how long. But wow, mm-hmm. The Witches is just such a classic example. Yeah, the reveal. You know, the the other witches are fine. Like, they look like women who have been outfitted with bald caps that have sores on them. And, Mm. you know, you kind of get to see the feet quickly, but then we're clearly just covering them up with stockings and so on. But this design on the Grand High Witch is epic right Mm -hmm. it actually reminds me of work like ridley scott's legend with the um the woman in the bog and tim curry like they're showstopper pieces and the film treats it like its own set piece when she peels off her face brenna and we see that hump come out and the nose juts out you know it's partially kind of rodent informed which i love because it ties into the Grand High Witch's plan to turn all these children into mice. She herself looks like a deformed rat. I love it so much. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, sorry, I got distracted. So we have uh, <laughs> May Zetterling as Grandma Helga. And I had to look her up to see if she had done other things. Because to me, this is a similarly iconic performance. Mm-hmm. It's just not showy in the same way. But like, this grandma is such a fantastic character. She is. She is. She really is. The film introduces uh, Jason Fisher as Luke. So our unnamed protagonist, of course, gets a name. We have Charlie Potter as Bruno Jenkins. Rowan Atkinson as Mr. Stringer, the hotel Total manager. Total straight man role for him, and I love mm-hmm. it. Yeah, and he's fantastic in it, right? He's the guy who... <sighs> is caught up in this, but he's just trying to run this hotel. It's so fun to see him, yeah, just holding it together in a way that we don't normally get to see from Atkinson. It's I Mm -hmm. really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. It's a reminder that he's a legitimately talented actor, not just a comic farce, right? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Three final people. So we have Bill Patterson as Mr. Jenkins, who is Bruno's father. We have Brenda Blethen as Miss Jenkins. I forgot both of these actors are in here. Staples of British television and film. This is Brenda Blethen's first ever role I read. Ah, okay. That makes sense because she is super young looking. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm not used to her looking so fresh faced. Okay. <laughs> And then finally, we have Jane Horrocks as Miss Irvine, who is the assistant to the Grand High Witch, and of course, provides that change at the end where she ends up being the only witch left in England, and as a result, changes sides and becomes good. Yeah. It's I don't know about it. I mean, it's fine. (laughs) It's just, it's one of those things where you think, oh, but that's not the ending I know when I want. Yeah, exactly. It feels like... Yeah, we're we're definitely making changes for the sake of financials and audience scores. It's probably the only thing that they could have done. You can't have this movie end with him talking about, oh, I'm happy being a mouse. I'll die oh. in three years. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, that's just too much for a children's film. But, I mean, the rest of the film is... A very faithful adaptation for a lot of parts. You know, there's slightly bigger parts for the Jenkins family. It seems like the dad kind of wants to have sex with the Grand High Witch, and that's very amusing. More of a role for this Mr. Stringer character who is new-ish. Like, you get the impression that there's a similar character in the book, but he doesn't have a through line where he's constantly showing up. 
Yeah, in the book, it's just every time the mice come out, he's like, wait a minute, I told you to put those mice away. But mm-hmm. it's it's much expanded in the film. And also, I mean, yeah, you've got Rowan Atkinson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? The other funny thing to me is, you know, The Witches is not a short book, but it's also not a very long book. So I was interested to see, okay, I couldn't remember how long the actual film is. And when I started it up, it's not a very long movie. Like this moves at a fairly brisk pace, which is kind of ironic because we're not actually getting to the hotel very quickly. Like we have grandma fully introducing every single trait of these witches in the opening scenes. And then we kill the parents and then we move to England. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's a slow burn. Um, But for Mm -hmm. some reason it doesn't feel like it. I noticed Mm -mm. in, uh, in Miriam's email, she said that it was slower than she had remembered it. I don't remember watching this as a kid, so I don't think I have anything to compare it to, but I was surprised at how, um, yeah, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed those earlier scenes. I felt Mm -hmm. like I should be chomping at the bit to get to the seaside, but I wasn't really. Yeah, I think because there's still a lot of fun stuff happening. Like there's enough intrigue and mystery. You know, grandma tells a good yarn. We've got the sad story of her childhood friend who came across a witch and ended up disappearing into a painting, which is haunting. Yeah, yes, it is. And it's really well done in the film. Yeah. Yeah, because it's exactly what I visualize when I read the book, you know, the idea of this character moving around but not being able to communicate and then just getting older and disappearing. And we actually get to see it a couple of times in the film, suggesting that this is a thing that witches like to do because they don't kill and eat the children. They just find ways to get rid of them. Yeah, the one where she pokes the painting to, like, mm-hmm. bother the child who she's trapped in the hotel. Was, oh, that's, that was a good one. It's yeah. good. Yeah. So do you want to talk about some of this puppetry? Because you're more of a Jim Henson <laughs> fan than I am. I had memories that they were all real mice. So mm-hmm. rewatching it and realizing, oh, no, Jim Henson clearly does certain sections. Like whenever the mice are talking, yeah. that's animatronic. But then we do have actual mice performing some of these feats where they're like moving through the kitchen with the bottle or grabbing it from the Grand High Witch's hotel room and so on. And I thought that was interesting because my child brain did not remember that. Well, I love that because it shows that the puppeteering was well done, right? Mm -hmm. It's sort of of seamless with the live mice. And I think it's a really good choice because oftentimes where puppeteering falls down is on moving convincingly like the animal. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to do, right? So here instead we have cuts between the mice when they're actually moving are mice. And Mm -hmm. when they're stopping to talk their puppets, they are such cute puppets. Can we just say? <laughs> Very cute. Oh I my actually gosh. prefer the Bruno one to the Luke one. I do too. It's the color of him and the shape of his ears, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're really well done too because they are, I don't know, they're extremely lively and emotive mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, Jim Henson is sort of it's what he's known famous for. for. It's what, yeah, yeah, it's what he does. Um, but you can see it working really well here. And I think that juxtaposition between between live and puppet works surprisingly well. The first time it jumped, I was like, mm, I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, but especially in like the kitchen scene or yes. in the scene when they're in the hallway, it's fun to imagine real mice concocting these schemes, right? Like it's kind mm-hmm. of a hoot. 
Well, and one of the interesting things that Rogue does with his camera work is that he puts us at the level of the mice. So we are right there crawling along floorboards. We are up in not the rafters, but like up on tall shelves in the kitchen. And we really get a sense of like we are focalizing the viewpoint through Luke and Bruno's experiences. So we are just immediately put into the film right it feels like a simulation and we are going through it with them yes totally agree i think that that makes it all the more effective it's perspective right like one of the nice things is when when the mice are discovered you sort of have these like giant humans leering Mm -hmm. down at them Mm -hmm. and it's it's as much of a scary jump as some of the scenes with the witches you know because it is as much of a threat to those characters in that state Yeah, we love a low angle shot in this film. (laughs) And you're right, the human beings look absolutely huge and monstrous. And it just, it makes that kind of disconnect between children and adults all the more visually realized. Love it. Yeah. Um, The puppeteering was done by a number of people, not all of whom are famous puppeteers now, including... um, Don Austin, who was one of the key puppeteers for Labyrinth, he Mm. plays Bruno, and Steve Whitmere, who, you know, most famously uh, inherited the roles of both Ernie and Kermit the Frog after Jim Henson died. Um, He's the puppeteer for Luke. Oh, wow. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the only other thing that stands out to me is that epic climax when all of the witches go up and smoke in the dining room. And... In some ways, it's so simple, but really comparing it to the more sort of bombastic CGI-ified version in the Anne Hathaway, Robert Zemeckis film, there's something so charming about Mm -hmm. the fact that these are clearly just sort of like smoke bombs that we're using and spinning camera work and clothing that is giant so that we can put things inside them and so on. Like, it's smart filmmaking and it's held up like it's survived the test of time because it was done well uh so i have some cute trivia about the actual filming of the film do you want to hear it i do yeah okay so they filmed it in a real hotel right okay (laughs) so that's important because otherwise none of the rest of this makes sense it's called the headland hotel and it's in cornwall in the uk um so first of all rowan atkinson uh left his bath taps running in his room and then went to bed Oh, no. And uh huh. And the hotel porters were like trying to get into his room and like knocking. And he was like, "I'm asleep. Go away." And the <laughs> the hotel was full flooding, and all of the production equipment uh, on the floor below his room ended up having to be written off because it Ooh. all got destroyed. Cha-ching. I know. Also, Angelica Houston was dating Jack Nicholson when they were making this yes. movie. And so mm-hmm. he would um, send these huge bouquets to the hotel for her and would call the hotel all the time. And apparently, like, the staff, the actual, like, hotel staff would just hang around the desk, like, waiting to see if they were going to pick up a Jack Nicholson phone call. Which Can you I, imagine? <laughs> you know, I just love it. And then the last thing is, you know that, um, the sort of green vapor that we see mm-hmm. in the movie? Okay, so yes. it was oil-based. Yeah, I know this one. <laughs> and it got behind the contact, Angelica Houston's contacts, and she had to, like, keep taking them out and changing them because she couldn't see, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, the oil was, like, occluding her vision all the time. She had the hardest job on this set. Like, right. there's no doubt. It's the kind of thing where you think, okay, sure, it's career-defining. You don't know that when you take the job on. <laughs> what you're signing up for is 12 hours in the makeup chair and potential retina scarring. Yeah. <laughs> 
Have fun. <laughs> but Jack Nicholson's going to send you flowers. <laughs> there you go. Yes, you, you get the Jack Nicholson uh, after all. <laughs> I do find it very interesting that the film was focus grouped as much as it was. I know Jim Henson used focus grouping a lot because he was very interested in creating programming that was interesting for both children and adults. And I know that right. he used focus grouping to sort of achieve that um, okay. at a time when focus grouping was not used particularly extensively. Hmm. But I'm surprised, I'm genuinely surprised at how much the focus groups, apparently a lot of additional scary content was cut from the film in addition to the yes. ending being changed mm -hmm. based on the focus groups. And for some reason, the ending doesn't surprise me. I kind of knew it was always going to be a happier ending than what we get sure. in the book. But the removal of scary, because it's not like Jim Henson shied away from scary content. If anybody ever watched the Storyteller series, for example, mm. like that stuff is spooky. So I would love to see a version of this with all the scary stuff put back in. Yeah. And I'll confess, I don't know if that footage even exists anymore because I, I've heard that, that they had to cut things, but I've never heard anyone say whether or not they could add it back in. Like, is it in a vault somewhere that they could yeah. just do that kind of piece? And people don't seem to be clamoring for a kind of scarier cut of this. So I don't know if it's just off the table. And also they did shoot the original ending as well and Roald Dahl got to watch a version with the original ending and he loved right. it and mm -hmm. I think that's part of why he was so angry that it wasn't what made the final cut because he had seen what he thought was going to be the ending of his story if that makes sense right oh interesting yeah all right well Brenna let's swap gears again and do a little bit of YA bingo okay yay I'm excited bingo not a good bingo I'm excited. So Magic Supernatural. Obviously. Yeah. Um, dead Bodies. Dead mm -hmm. Family. Yeah, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, I am going to go with, I, I want to include CGI because I want to gesture oh. to the difference between the 2020 witches and the 1990 witches. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I'll I'm going to include that. that. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's kind of you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to tell me, but mm -hmm. I want to say stunt casting. Yes. For both Angelica Houston and Rowan Atkinson, but I'm actually not sure what point in their careers they were at when the film was made. I'll confess, I also had this one down for Angelica Houston. I don't think it's true for Rowan Atkinson. I think he would have been known, especially by British folks, maybe he would be known for his television stuff. But like, this is before Mr. Bean. Yeah, so internationally, true. he wouldn't have been a big figure. Okay, I've, I'll accept that. Um... So I have good friendships because even though I don't think that Bruno is a friend to anyone, I do think that Luke is actually very considerate of trying to make sure that he doesn't get killed or that he gets back to his parents. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think the friendship between the narrator and the grandmother is huge too. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we often think of friendship as having to be between people of the same ages and that's not that's not true. No, it's <laughs> For some not. reason, we had to do that. <laughs> uh, I had the chosen one because it feels like it's this perfect pairing of the narrator and grandma or Luke yes. and grandma in the film where they have to actively say, yep, we're going to do this. We're going to end this line of witches. I also think it's interesting that in the film, they soften the grandma. In the book, she's very much like, go, kill them doesn't yeah. matter like be be <laughs> careful but also you're gonna do this whereas in the film it's very much luke saying grandma i'm gonna do this and she's much more worried about him 
Yeah, I actually, the thing I love most about her in the book is the way she pushes his independence. So, yes. Mm -hmm. No. Um, I have a road trip. It's a soft road trip because we are taking this trip away from the house from Norway to go to this seaside resort. It's more significant in the book. And, you know, like we have that long train journey together and stuff. So I, Mm -hmm. I buy it. Okay. Borrowed time, because we know that we have to enact this plan before the witch's dinner is complete, or else they will separate and they will all open their candy shops. Definitely. And then the final piece that I had is abuse, because, I mean, it's not the abuse that we're used to, but the way that these witches treat children, and even like the way that children are just treated by adults in a lot Mm. of these cases, like you could argue Bruno's parents. I was going to say Bruno's parents, 100% they abuse him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Emotionally, anyway. Yeah. Um, So that's what I have. Yeah, no, I agree with you for all of them. You know, we didn't really get to get into it, but what's interesting about the 2020 film is the significant attention to the trauma that our narrator is under. Mm -hmm. And what I would really love to see is a film that combined the sort of chaos and fun and practical effects of the 1990 film with the awareness of trauma of the 2020 film. I Mm -hmm. think that would be an amazing adaptation. Yeah, I I also thought that the new film in some ways softens the story, but also keeps some of the hard edges that were removed from the 1990 film. Like the story of Luke's grandmother in the new one gets updated so that the child doesn't go into a painting. She is transformed into a chicken and the insinuation is that her family eats her. Yeah. Which is way more horrifying way more horrifying but it also feels like the kind of thing where children may not understand the ramifications and it might just go over their head it's worth noting that the children stay mice in the um yes in the new film version which i think Roald Dahl mm-hmm. would have been glad about yeah i i think that's a recognition that we've moved beyond won't someone please think of the children like this movie acknowledges no we can actually end this on a sort of downer-ish note while still retaining the kind of optimism that's embodied by the book's ending. I honestly think that if they could have spent the time and energy and money on practical effects, Mm -hmm. uh, it would have been an absolute knockout of a film. Plus, Stanley Tucci in the Rowan Atkinson role is amazing. It's very funny, isn't it? Very, very funny. I think the the issue is that Robert Zemeckis is a CGI wonder boy. Like, he loves to push the envelope in that regard. So you could tell that he was having a lot of fun with it. It's just that it doesn't look good. Yeah, yeah. there's parts where I wanted it to look good. Like, that first smile that Anne Hathaway gives when her uh, mouth her like, slices mouth. in half. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was like, I wanted this to be good. Why are you good? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> But she's having so much fun. And she's a wonderful witch. She's really come yeah. to a point in her career. I was thinking about like, if you track from the devil wears Prada to here, it's kind of mm-hmm. great. You know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I I was never on the Anne Hathaway haterade train. Oh, no. I always think she's good. Me too. I adore her, actually. Uh, all this to say, no lie. We're done. No. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I've already alluded to it accidentally, but next week's episode is on The Moth Diaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that is a book from the early 2000s, a film from the early 2010s, female writers, female directors, and uh, a little bit of Canadiana, Brenna. 
Yeah, I'm so excited. A lot of promise there. I'm, I'm stoked. And then after that, we'll be taking a look at the Netflix series Boo Bitch, which is just silly, <laughs> but you should definitely watch it. <laughs> yeah, that one's a quick in and out. Uh, it's like a binge for an afternoon and you're ready to go. Totally. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us about anything we've talked about today or on any episode, uh, you can find us on Twitter. We're on the hashtag HKHSPod or at HKHSPod. Joe, where do they find you? I can be reached at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And if you have anything more long form, you can find us on email, HKHSPod at gmail.com. Right. Yes, because of course we want you to write in about the next band book club. So in November, we're <laughs> we're going to talk about boys, Brenna. <laughs> boys, boys. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to stick with books from like the mid 21st century. We're going to read William Golding's Lord of the Flies, and then we're also going to watch the I want to say it's like 1961 or 62 film yeah i'm excited for this also 20th century joe um damn it i haven't revisited this since well i read it in high school like everybody did and then it was also mm -hmm. on my american literature comprehensives but uh, i've never okay. read it for fun so i'm right? excited for this <laughs> yeah and i've never read it and i've never seen the film but <gasps> i've seen every permutation of this because we still make oh. kind of loose adaptations of this like i was watching a recently canceled amazon tv show called the wilds and it was basically female lord of the flies that's what all the reviews called it because it was a bunch of teenage girls who were stranded on an island it's one of those books that is so classic much like catcher in the rye it has become a trope unto itself so right. i'm excited to revisit the original and for you to read it for the first time i mm -hmm. wow i'm excited yeah, so folks, yeah. Uh, if you were like me, reading it for the first time, watching it for the first time, or if you've read it like Brenna a couple of times, and you're going back for that reread, rewatch, we want to hear from you. So uh, tell us about your Lord of the Flies experience. Please do. And until then, well, not then, that's in a while, but until right. next time, I will see you on the page. <laughs> yes, and I will see you on the screen. And give away free shops. <clears throat> well, because she does nothing but eat smokes and... I'm sorry. I'm trying to think of bridge into what I want to talk about next. I'm just going to mm. go for it. <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> oh, my brain is slow today. Me too.